So we are still moving along this uh, continuum from form to formlessness. <clears throat> and we're doing it uh, in our own time <laughs> and in our own way. Uh, but I'd like to uh, continue the journey this evening. <clears throat> and uh, one of the, one of the uh, ways I'd like to do that is I was reading uh, from a, a paper a neurologist wrote <clears throat> where he said uh, that the same neurological pathway, perception, that, that pathway, the neurological pathway of perception is the same pathway as memory. And I stopped there. I thought, well, that really has Dharma implications. Because essentially what he's saying is that when we're seeing the perception, the neurological connection of perception, is also the same perception as remembrance. So it's not clear whether we're seeing or remembering what we saw, which is very interesting because if we go way back to the far left-hand corner of this diagram, you'll see that form and formlessness are confused. And the reason they are confused is because of that very fact that when we sit down and when we try to make our minds current, when we try to see what is actually there, there is a confusing blend of information that shows us what what we know is there, which is the memory. And it's very difficult to sort of separate those two out. And in some ways, much of the Dharma has to do with doing just that. But they're the same neurological pathway. So you would think it would be impossible to do that, but it's not. In fact, when we sit down and learn to pay attention to our breath, we are essentially learning the differentiation between those two. One of the reasons we, of course, place our attention on the breath is so that we can hold our attention steady enough to be able to see. If our attention is constantly flitting with each thought that passes through, then our line of sight will be that jagged and disconnected. But as we learn to hold our attention upon the sensation rather than thinking about the sensation, then we find the steady attention being cultivated. But perhaps more important than that fact, and that's an important fact, is the fact that we're learning the difference between perception and memory. Because memory is carried by the wording, by the definition, by the thought that we give what we see. And so as we begin to sit down, we're also beginning that very finite journey refined journey of being able to differentiate between those two. Because if we look where we begin in the spiritual journey, it's all confused. In fact, one of the statements that most of the beginning meditators that I teach ask is, what do you mean Think thinking is not what I see? What do you mean by that? I don't understand what you mean by the thought, and then there's a thought about the thought. I don't understand it, because it's so enmeshed 
we live through the conceptual framework that memory has provided us. We don't really see at the crucial creation level. And I like the word creation in particular. Ajahn Chah had a, a statement. He said, um, all we're really doing in spiritual work is watching or observing the very act of universal creation. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of cosmology. And so when I think of that statement in terms of cosmology, it's like galaxies, like the universe is expanding at an enormous uh, speed outward. And it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's expanding away from each point at the same speed. So no two points are coming together, so to speak. It's like when you blow up a balloon that all, the whole balloon, each point on the balloon moves away from the other points on the balloon. So too, that's how the universe is moving. And when you get a sense of this thing, is the cusp of that creative aspect, it's moving, it's in turmoil, it's, uh, uh, stars are being born and dying. The whole shift of that is a creative, the, the, on the cusp of creativity as we're just moving through space. And what we are now seeing has never been seen before. The configuration is completely different. But what holds it familiar to us is our memory. And each moment that we are on this earth, the same movement is happening throughout the universe. It's not just happening at the edge of the planets. It's happening within the life of everything. And that sense of being being able to bear witness to the creation. And so if we steady our gaze so that we can sense that creative display, right, and we stay on that, the edge of that creativity, you really get a sense of the vitality and aliveness that that creativity brings forth. But if you turn, even the smallest degree away, the mind is what turns you, and you will be lost within the thoughts about that creation. And you'll reclaim the creation as something you know, as something that you've been a part of, as something that has, is a repetition of what you have grown up with. So you come into this room, for instance, and oh yeah, I know I sit Every twice a week we have a Dharma talk in here. I sit in here and these are the hours I sit. And when I come in, the Zafus and Zabutans are all arranged. And it's as if we, we, we make, we set the map when really nothing is the same. Nothing. Nothing internally is the same in us and nothing externally is the same. The sights we see are not the same. We have somehow laced it all together in a neat package called memory. And that sameness is critical because it's also deadening. The creation itself is alivening, but the turning away and making it the memory is the deadening, is why we feel so uninspired by our life, so dead within it. And so the question really is, so how can we split this neurological pathway 
right? This, we're talking about moving now into the main quadrangle of that diagram. See that we want to know, I mean, it's not as if we're being asked to forget the past. It's just that we don't want to confuse the past with the present. Thought with perception, same thing. Like when emotion arises, think of your internal response. Same thing. We meet that emotion with the background story that has given it a meaning in terms of our past life. Our past within this life, let us put it that way. (laughs) So you get a sense that this emotion you had, let's call despair or let's call it depression or whatever, pick your best emotion. It has an accompanying story. It has, it has, it carries within that perception a history of it. And so what, then we get torn. You see, we don't really meet it fresh. We don't really meet it anew. We meet it with that, uh, with that irregular and uh, irritating history, perhaps, if it's a negative or difficult emotion. And all the things that happened that caused this and all the reasons that I have to have this with me and all the blame objects for it and all of that, the justification, all of that we think what we need to do to explore what it is and why it's happening to me. We need to turn further back around and look deeper in the opposite direction in order to understand, to refresh ourselves into the new energy that is in front of us. Does that, see, does that make any sense? How are, you, how are you going to stand this way at the cusp of creative, creation by turning back around and exploring deeper into the cave of yourself? See, we don't, we don't, we don't, we're such a go-along society. You tell me what to do and how to do it and I'll just follow your, that we don't ask ourselves critical information And that's essential when we come into the spiritual. We have to ask ourselves, we have to make this a clean palette of discovery. And so, of course, I can't go back that way. It's important to honor the fact that that's there, to feel it as the total embodiment of it. But I'm facing this way. And if that wants to come out as part of the creation of what is now being seen, so that the past is coming through the present, rather than determining the present, I'm not going to get away from this neurological pathway. So the past is going to come. I can either turn to it and make it real, or I can stay on the cusp of creativity and see it for what it is, which is the only way we'll see it for what it is. If we turn in the slightest degree back towards it, we have confirmed its truth. And we have seen the pathway. We have seen the truth of our pathway as a memory and not as a perception. This making sense? But you see, it's like this. Life is like this. Now that also shows us the greatest possible healing for our psychological wounds. Many of us carry the torturous past 
perhaps we had a difficult childhood, I don't know, whatever it is. And when, if we turn back, we'll get lost in that because the past is the past. It will just show you more of it, often exaggerated through our emotional volatility within it and our exaggeration of it since then. It's, we often make it worse than it actually was or better than it actually was, whatever it is. It, it's not the way it was. And we think we can sort of solve it by turning back there. But the real healing is to stay on the creativity side. So from the creative side, the perceptual side, the past comes into the present. But it isn't determined to be the defining element of the present. The present is a defining element of the present, and therefore it can move out through the present. And it doesn't lock itself into a system or narrative any longer. It comes out, it flows out. What's in us, and for most of us, it's locked into our, the cells of our body. When we sit down and we aren't self-recriminating or judging ourselves all along, when there's a little bit of quiet, that stuff starts releasing. And it releases itself as a memory or as a reactive pattern or as a, an emotion that comes through or something. But it's releasing itself in the present. As long as we can stay properly oriented to that experience, it will move out as part of the present, a part of the creativity. It'll come out. And, does, and, and therefore can be cleansed, cleansed, cleansed. I hope, I hope people try to apply that fact to, your, to the areas of yourself that need that kind of, of attention. Most of us have deep psychological wounds that we'd rather not deal with, which just means we are fully facing the past and blocking all entrance of the past coming into the present means we believe totally in the past when we have that kind of rep, that kind of relationship to our our own system now we have to figure out some way so that we can discern the difference on an ongoing basis of perception and memory because the sense of me the sense of you the sense of self is a memory it's an image, an idea we have about ourselves that we perpetuate moment after moment by reclaiming that sense of ourselves within each perception. I see, I know, I hear. And we just think that's what we're seeing. My stool, my this, my that, or me. We don't have a way, we don't have an understanding, There's, we don't see a way to be able to pull these two out, separate them. So that's why it's very important, and I, I'm trying to make this whole diagram from confusion to clarity, or from suffering to the end of suffering, or from form to formlessness, as simple as possible. I don't have any deviated roots here. There's no little, you know, 
There's no maze involved in this. And it can be gone through very quickly if our intention is there to do so. And so we have to look at the process of discernment. Awareness, okay, one of the things we're doing as we clean up our attention from thoughts, the past, is that we're coming into bare attention. Now you've all heard that word, B-A-R-E. Sometimes it feels like B-E-A-R. <laughs> the bare, the absolute cleanliness of attention is awareness, right, is only becomes personalized through the confusion of thoughts about me within it. And even our awareness, which is pristine, when we start thinking about awareness or trying to bring it forth, that pathway is also submerged within the thoughts of me and I, my awareness. And that's called mindfulness, where we establish an identity associated with the awareness. Now I'm going to be mindful. Okay, so we have to clean it up. As we begin to clean it up and pull the memory away from the perception so that the real perception, that which perceives the awareness itself, starts having an intelligence all its own. And this, may I say, this is called discernment. Discernment is the intelligence of awareness. It's not your intelligence. Awareness has an intelligence associated with it. I don't mean an intellect. I mean a knowing. Okay, so as we clean it up and that intelligence becomes active, it gets confused. We don't listen to the intelligence that's not mine. That's called our intellect. We'd rather follow our intellect. That's what we know to be true. That's the past representation of the present, you see. But discernment has nothing to do with the past. It's looking straight out at the on the cusp of creativity. That's discernment. And it's seen, vitally seen, clearly seen what is there. Follow my words. Believe me, they make sense. (laughs) 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 They do. (laughs) See, I love branching out into new words. This is creativity. This has to speak in the 21st century. I hate those books that you have to... (laughs) 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 Okay, so... Now here's... We don't trust discernment. And that's the truth. Well, I mean, why should we, right? We've trusted our own intelligence. We don't trust... We don't think that it's going to save us. We think our intelligence is going to save us because that's our backdrop. That's our default position. When we want to be saved, we save ourselves through logic and rational thinking or whatever it is. But at some point, we begin to see that that's confusing the present with the past and that that has to stop. My thinking has to stop if I am to venture forth, continue to move in this journey. So I have to shut up. But that shuts off my intelligence. And I don't want to shut up because what am I going to do? I'm going to start walking into walls because I won't know a door from a window. What's what's going to happen to me, right? 
So we get frightened. So we go back into our intelligence, which invites the knowledge base of our intellect, and then we just keep going forward that way. But I want to assure you that discernment knows the difference between a door and a window. You don't have to worry about that. You're completely cared for within discernment. It won't let you go hungry. That's important. There's no way for you to verify that until you see it for yourself. So discernment is a very safe faith. To, to put faith in discernment is very faith. Now there's two types of discernment. One branches off this way called passive discernment. One goes the other direction. It's called active discernment. Both are very important. So. Stick with me on this. First, we'll talk about passive discernment. Passive discernment is, is doing nothing. It's the th third foundation of awareness, where you do nothing to your mind. You're simply letting whatever you see be observed. There's, you, if there's a judgment, that's what the mind is doing. That's not what discernment is doing, and discernment sees that. There is no analysis, there's no, nothing is wrong with it. It's being seen as a totality in its perfection, holistically, just that. And it requires a vi the vitality of seeing, but no manipulation from you whatsoever. No practice whatsoever. Now this is also ultimate healing. How is this healing? When you do nothing, there's a, a term in science called homeostasis, which when a system is no longer pressured from outside or inside by any additional forces, it comes to its own balance. You take the mind and you place it in that theme of homeostasis. When you don't, aren't judging it, condemning it, side-taking, or centering yourself outside of the mind, which is also pressuring it, but seeing yourself as a part of the mental process then, and just allowing that to be there without taking a polar point of view from what's arising, it comes into homeostasis, to balance. You see, the reason we see the way we see is because it's fractured, because the mind is disturbed, it's wavy. It's in, it's, it's, it has waves in it. When you take a position in your mind as if you were outside of your mind having a mind, that creates tension within the mind because you're not outside the mind having a mind. You're in the mind as part of the mind. And therefore, anytime you say I and believe it, not as a thought but as an actual central position, you have added a pressure on the mind that was never there. And it can't, it can't come to balance. But when you see yourself as coming, arising out of the mind, and therefore you're not, no longer torturing yourself with either your self-criticism or something you like as opposed to something you don't, then the mind comes into a natural and organic state of homeostasis. And you see that way. 
what happens, the rancor of the argument of one hemisphere of the mind disputing the other, I don't like this thought, I hate that emotion, all of that, you can just feel the waves turning. When you simply let all of that go, you come to quiet because the rancor came from the irritations and the resistance that was happening within the mind. Now when you're finished with that, when you're finished of seeking a position outside the mind and you're willing to settle yourself within it as a thought believed, then simply allowing yourself to become quiet within the totality of that. That's healing and it heals very quickly. It heals like that. It comes together quietly. It's healed in that moment. And in that moment, there is discernment. And in that moment, there is no past influence upon discernment. Key points. Now, from that passive discernment, just letting the mind be. Matter of fact, I remember the exact place, you know, like where were you when Kennedy died? Probably most of you weren't even born, but I, <laughs> I happen to remember that. However, I also remember this insight when I realized that all of practice was simply leaving the mind alone. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I had, I, I really had trouble with that. What do I mean? I saw it, but I had trouble. The after effects, the aftershocks of it. Like I couldn't, because it took everything away from me. It took everything away from me. It took my practice away from me. It took everything away from me. But I knew it to be true. But I didn't like to be stripped so raw. So it took me a long time to work myself into that understanding. And then I read the third foundation, which is essentially passive discernment. And so there is a, and may I say that it, as the third foundation is understood, he says, notice when you're this way or when you're the opposite. One of the things he says, notice when there is samadhi and notice when there is not samadhi. He does not say for you samadhi wallas, always be in the state of samadhi. <laughs> That's putting it out of balance. If you have to be in any state all the time, the waves start, right? Because you're not that way. That's not the way the creativity unfolds. That's the way you want to, it to unfold. That's not the way, it, that's not the cusp of seeing. So passive discernment is a very important property to come to the sacred because it in itself is the sacred. It's very funny. We use the tool to seek the sacred when we understand that the tool we're using is the sacred. You're already doing it every time you're aware, trying to be aware. It's just that there's so much past covering that awareness, you don't see any sacredness in your awareness. You just see me and how difficult it is. As that gets cleaner, it also gets freed from under our control. 
And as it expands beyond our control, then we understand it to be the sacred, the unmanifest, the unformed. And it's been right in front of us all the time. We've just been using it as something that would get us out of this situation called suffering. Never realizing that it abiding within it is the end of suffering. It's so funny how we, you know, we whack a mole. Pop! Boom! Comes up in some... Okay, so now I want to take you to active discernment. Very important. Active discernment is discernment, but in an active phase. And there are two expressions that I'd like to talk about of active discernment tonight. One is inquiry. The other is contemplation. Both are vital. Inquiry is a kind of a natural orientation of the mind directing its attention, discernment, towards understanding an area of confusion where thoughts and perception are so mixed and so intertwined that there's this confusion. The past, what's the past, what's the creativity, what's the now, what's the then? It's like uh, early childhood experiences, almost, well, all reactive patterns by definition. Many of the ways that we think we see what's going on, but we don't, we just kind of glaze over. And what Buddhism is attempting to do is to get us to see the difference again between what is actually happening, what we assume to ha- happen. But this, this sense of questioning, what is, what's going on here? What is this? You feel it in yourself, all of us do. You feel something going on in your mind or your body that isn't, is difficult or tension-filled or something, and you just, what's going on? What is this? It's a sincere addressing or pointing of our energy for discovery, for clarity, within the confusion that exists. And it can ferret out everything, anything that you so wish to see, but you have to want to see it. It will ferret out you. You will see what you are, if you want to. Instead of being confused about what you are, which most of us are, because we are all, again, entangled in our history and in our, the present is somehow here and the history is somehow here and I don't know what's, what's me and what I remember is me and all of that. Just to transgress a little bit. Not transgress, but yeah. To go, not backwards, but... Huh? Digress. digress. <laughs> to digress for a moment. <laughs> I, in college, uh, uh, the, I had a professor, very renowned professor emeritus, who was a very conditioned in the Skinnerian age of conditioning. And he said in the class, I remember this, he said that virtually we could replicate, if we had the tools, the ability, we could replicate your life, exactly what you're seeing now, everything, the mind. I raised my hand and said, you could replicate consciousness. Yes, we could replicate consciousness. You could replicate seeing. I said, well, why when I see out there's light, 
Why isn't there darkness? I mean, how, what's that about? You see, I was going towards the aliveness. And it threw him a little bit. You know, he didn't, hadn't thought of that. Maybe. But anyway, the point is that there isn't something you can replicate. That there is something alive in all of that muddled confusion about ourselves. Something exists in there. Something is alive in there. Don't you know that? Isn't there something? Can't you go to some place in yourself that is the same now as it's ever been? You see, most of us can do that. We can find it. And you're never fooled. And so that, that is what begin, we, need to get, we need to understand what, what this cocoon of confusion we have about ourselves. What is it? What's, where, what's the essence of us? And you take the rest of it away because it's just lamentated around us. It's just, we're just shrouded in some confusion of the past overlaying upon this central thing called aliveness. And if your heart really wants to know that, active discernment, which is inquiry in looking and seeing and investigating, what is going, what is this thing? And it goes anywhere, it goes everywhere, and there's nowhere it shouldn't go. It should go everywhere. Because everything, when I go like this, it means it's a key point. (laughs) You want it, to make the practice your own is essential. If you rely on one aspect of practice being assumed from what the Buddha said, and you're not seeing it for yourself, your practice will rest, will be stuck at that particular point. But you have the authority of the Buddha. Fine, you now are tethered to that point. And people say, well, how come you don't use Buddha's words? Because I want to be free of that. I want nothing to do with that. The Buddha didn't use Buddha's words. He used his words. And all of us have to find our own vocabulary. And so we have to undertake the privilege of this investigation, and it is a privilege to have the time, the space, the inclination, the intention to sort of separate out the confusion about ourselves with the truth about ourselves. And the truth can be and will be known if we so Resolve. So now let me tell you about the other quality of active discernment called contemplation. Because it's not spoken about much in this tradition for some reason. It's a beautiful, beautiful accompanying component of wisdom. That you take something You just take a phrase or a word or maybe an image or something that you hear. It can be anything like, I am. And you just let it sit 
in conscious. Let it float within conscious. You don't act upon it. You're, just, you're curious about it. You're interested. But you're, it's not, you're not driving. It's not like truth at, for truth's sake like inquiry is. It's not a, it doesn't have that kind of uh, energy that inquiry has. It's just floating there. And sometimes it comes up and, re, and you have some insights around it and thoughts come into and around those insights and you get a sense of, of that and, and that's, you know, and then, it, and then you just put it back down in. You just, like putting a raft on the water, you just put it back there and let it float some more. And you have this beautiful simpatico of thought and stillness where the insight will arise and some thoughts will come about what I am is, you know, what, what is I am or what is love or anything. Just a question, just a beautiful question. And then, you'll, so there's some reflection that goes on there, which is sort of an active discerning of what this is about. And then we just float it back down into quiet. And this beautiful relationship between the depth of stillness itself and thought, which can be difficult for most practitioners because we've learned to try to separate thought from insight, but we don't see the value of sometimes allowing it to have a symbiotic relationship where they each feed each other. True contemplative quality. And so, from that, you learn about what form is. What is form? You see? What is form? And what you learn, what we all learn, no matter what form is, you learn that it's mind created. It came from the rancor of the past. And that it's coded with the past. And what we see it from the past, it's solid like we would believe it to be. Because we believe in the past as being true, we see that as being true. And we give it three-dimensionality. We give it substance. We give it form. We give it what we know it to be. What it's always been. What our father told us it was. You see? Look around the room and tell me if there's something you don't know. You know everything that's here. You may not know the word for it, but that's a vent, because I know what the context is. See, it, there's nothing unknown here. And yet everything is unknown. Now see it in stillness. So when you see it in stillness, your mind isn't going into the definition, into the knowledge of what you have. It's being quiet. You still see shape and color. But there's, a, there's something alive within all of it. It's alive. That old Frankenstein, he's alive. <laughs> it's all alive. It's all... We're on the cusp of things. You see? Now, this just needs your encouragement. 
takes courage, core, hardage, because when you look at form and you see that it just reflects back what you know about it, that it's just a projection of what is already known coming back at us. You want to be quiet with that memory and see what's really there. And when you start perceiving it experientially for what it really there, it becomes formless. It can't sustain its shape. No, it's said wrong. It can't sustain its meaning without words. And so you see it. You, Everything inside that we thought, everything outside. And science is, it's, it's not like this is something that's antagonist, antagonistic to science. Science is saying the same thing. We don't know what anything is. Nothing is known. We think we know, but that's all it is. And if you say, well, those. I know what elements, so you're just, you're just making something unknown and breaking it into smaller unknown parts. Like we know what an element is, or an atom, or, or this, or that. We don't know what anything is. And it all sums to zero. If it sums to zero, by God, I want to know that. I want to stop fooling myself because it hurts when it's one. It doesn't hurt when it's zero. And so I want to, I want to pierce the veil of this. I want to see with eyes that are vintage, that are accessible to the creative aspect of life. I want to see anew. And lo and behold, you see the center of what has been with us our entire life. You, you abide within that center. And everything that is a part of the past, can't sustain itself in the creative movement forward. So it starts falling apart. A melting snow man. It can't sustain itself because it's nothing. It's, it's right in front of our eyes. It's disappearing. It's just, it, it tries to be something, but it can't. This then is the practice. This then is the practice. Active discernment, passive discernment. Moving wherever we need to. There's a sense of exploring this and seeing that forever. Key point until the end of time, which is very close. Thank you all.
Can we sit for a minute or two? So the uh, recorder can be turned off. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.